Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Anjali Crochet. This season, we're talking about the power of building inclusive and representative creative teams. And the Marvel's Voices books are an incredible example of that. I might be a little biased since I'm the contributing editor, but I also think I'm right. I'm excited because today we're talking about Marvel's Voices Wakanda Forever number one. The book hit comic book shelves on February 15th, and it's the first in our spotlight of certain sectors of the Marvel Universe as it comes to the Marvel's Voices anthologies. This anthology features five brand new stories about some of our favorite Wakandan heroes, past, present, and future. The book's all-black cast of creators features veterans like Ken Lashley and Aletha Martinez, and, similar to other Marvel's Voices books, includes brand new talent. Today, I'm talking to writers Adam Serwer and Dr. Sheena Howard about their contributions to the book, which also happen to be their very first stories for Marvel. First up is Dr. Sheena Howard. Sheena is the first Black woman recipient of the Eisner Award for her work on Black comics, politics, race, and representation. She also wrote the Encyclopedia of Black Comics and wrote and directed the documentary Remixing Colorblind. I had a chance to chat with Sheena about her Marvel's Voices story featuring Wakanda's women warriors, the Dora Milaje. Here's my conversation with Sheena. How would you introduce ourselves to our listeners? I am a writer, creative entrepreneur, and a professor. And I also happen to be the first Black woman to win an Eisner Award at San Diego Comic-Con. Your story as it relates to comic books and the Eisners is different. So talk to folks a little bit about this Eisner Award-winning book and how you first stepped into the arena of comics. Yes, that's so true. And I definitely think my entry point into comics has been an asset because I'm not as confined to the boundaries of what I think comics are supposed to be or talk about. So I think that it's an asset in a lot of different ways, especially when it comes to story ideas. But, you know, I did my dissertation on Black comic strips, specifically the boondocks, and that is where it all started for me at Howard University doing this dissertation as a 23-year-old that, you know, everybody thought I was crazy for doing a dissertation on comic strips. Let me tell you, it was not cool like it is today. And that dissertation, I went on to write a collection of essays with contributors And it got rejected by a bunch of publishers at first because they were basically like, you know, you can't do this. Basically, that was kind of the feedback, but it ended up getting published. And then it ended up winning that Eisner Award in the academic scholarly work category, which that was a pretty new category at the time. So that's my entry point into comics was really the boondocks comic strip, not comic books, not superheroes, not reading them as a kid. And so I like that you brought up the point that there are different entry points into comics and that's a good thing. I think the more industries that can interact with comics, the more the comic book industry grows. You were at the forefront of what a lot of us are doing now, which is studying what has been the cultural impact of comics and highlighting how comics are politically savvy, how comics tell stories in different ways that access other folks. 
and how that medium has changed literature. And I truly, truly appreciate you saying that and giving me some flowers because my perspective coming into the comic world was how can we use this medium to talk about Black history and document and preserve Black history through this particular medium because it wasn't being done. So when we think about the history of Black speakers and Black people in the civil rights movement, right? We think about Martin Luther King or great Black speakers, but... But we rarely talk about Martin Luther King's comic book. Exactly. Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. You know, it was published in 1957 and was actually one of the reasons John Lewis got involved in the civil rights movement. You know, a lot of folks don't know, but it was given away to college students. And that was some of their first educations about what was happening around the country. Exactly. And so I was there saying, oh, my goodness, there were so many amazing black people challenging the status quo in the 50s. And they were doing great work in the comic space. How can I amplify those voices? And then that really turned into how can I amplify the voices of black people in comics today through things like the Encyclopedia of Black Comics and those types of books. Those types of books were also me trying to learn the medium as well because I didn't read comics as a kid. And so a lot of my books are out of curiosity as well as documenting and preserving Black history, Black culture through this particular medium. There's a point where you can decide to be completely academic. And there's a point where you can take it to the next step. And you actually decided that you were going to take this to the next step. And I'm really excited. Very first Marvel story is in Marvel's Voices, Wakanda Forever number one. Tell us a little bit about the story and why the Dora Milaje and why the story. And and give us a little bit of a sneak peek. Yeah, so you know... What people have been saying to me over the years since writing comics in 2016 is, hey, Sheena, if you ever get a chance to write for these places, we want you to sprinkle in African mythology, right? We want you to sprinkle in African mythology. So my story idea actually started with that. What are some African mythos that I can put into this story? So my story actually entails the retelling of an Anansi the Spider story, which is a African folk hero trickster type character. And I also wanted to learn a little bit more about the Dora. What does their initiation process look like? What does the training look like? You know, so again, starting out with that question for me, what do I want to learn about? And how can I break some barriers and do some things that other people aren't doing with this story? And that's how I thought about it. I love it. There's a rare treat that folks get to have every once in a while is that they get to add a new character to Marvel canon. And you actually got to add a brand new character to the Marvel Universe, a Dora Milaje trainee. One, what does the process look like of developing a new character? And then two, like how much research did you have to do, right? Yes, um, yes. Especially when you're dealing with a character like Okoye. Yeah, so, hey, I hope Marvel lets me run with this character, by the way. Let's just put that out there. But you know what book really, really helped me? Karama's book, Protectors of Wakanda. Oh my goodness, a freaking gold mine. So most of my research came from there. And then the Anansi the Spider research, focusing on what story is appropriate in terms of Anansi the Spider to add. But Protectors of Wakanda was really all I needed. It's so in-depth and specific. And so, 
yeah, from there, just I'm always trying to add something new. And that's where we get, you know, our new character. Shout out to Cameron Horn, who's actually been on the show before. And this was her first book, uh, Protectors Ooh. of Wakanda. Man, she put her heart and soul in that book. And so for you, as you were developing out this character, what was on your mind? Like, what was the process of developing her out? Yeah, so I wanted her to kind of represent someone who was super talented, but still had things to learn. But more specifically, I just really was interested in this initiation process for these trainees. What does it look like? Because I felt like that wasn't something that I had seen a lot personally. And what what tension could I play with and who Deshante is as a person? You know, where are her weaknesses and kind of bringing them out in eight pages was was really what I was trying to focus on. That tension of somebody that's super talented, not cocky or arrogant, but has a lot of things to learn. You've worked on a number of projects with a lot of different folks, whether it's documentaries or it's books or obviously academia. What, if anything, feels different or special about working not just on comics, but on this Marvel's Voices project? Well, first of all, I think it's super cool that a lot of people have their Marvel debuts in this issue. Like the artist, Marcus Williams, it was his Marvel debut too. So we both got to do this for the first time together. And that was super, super cool. And shout out to Marcus because he did something that no artist has ever done before. He reached out to me. He's like, I want to have a call and talk to you about your thoughts about what you're thinking this should look like. What should the character look like? And I was like shocked because artists usually don't do that. You know, they get the script and they go do their thing. And I think it actually made our story come to life a lot better. And of course I was like, hey, I want my young Dora trainee to have locks and be dark skinned, right? <laughs> so yeah, we got to talk about that and and it came out beautiful. He did an awesome job as well. Yeah, it really turned out beautifully. And I gotta say, that's one of the benefits of bringing new folks in and making new creative teams and folks being really invested in the art. In this season of Marvel's Voices, we really wanted to talk about that. Like this idea of the power behind building more representative tables and more inclusive creative teams. As a leader, what does it look like when you're in this position to build those tables? So, you know, it's so funny you ask that because as, as I continue to be successful, I am being very adamant about hiring Black people on this journey. And just if I need an editor, I'm very intentional about hiring a Black editor in our community. If I need video editing, whatever it is, I'm being very intentional on the way up to reach out to Black people so that they can grow too. There are people who have the talent, but sometimes don't have the expertise. And I think I want to kind of bring that out of what you're saying is this idea of intentionally going out and seeking folks of color. So it's not just that they're talented. It's not just that they have the academic background, but they're really getting the hands on experience that will make them better because there's only so much you can learn in a book, right? Yeah, that's true. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I'm learning is that you have to have social capital and you have to have a network that can continue to bring you to the next level of networks so that if you're not in certain rooms, certain people are talking about you in certain rooms when you are not there. Projects like this and being able to work on projects like this helps with my social capital, helps with my networking, brings in more interviews so that, you know, I can continue to tell stories that challenge the status quo and inspire people. I'm just learning that 
You know, you cannot grow if you don't build your network and continue to hustle to network and build your social capital. If you are not out there networking, there's a ceiling to your success because you have to keep getting into those new rooms in front of those new people. I kind of want to take a step back and, and go back to some of your other writing. You've done a lot of work documenting Black comic creators. You won an Eisner for your first book, Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation. Tell the listeners about your next book, though, your 2017 book, The Encyclopedia of Black Comics. Like, how did you approach this research? Because I'm going to tell you, as a person who is doing this research and a person who has got to find these strips, some of these comics, one, printed on very inexpensive paper. Two, most of the time printed in black newspapers, which are extremely hard to find. How do you even approach researching something when it's just pieces? That's a good question. It, it, it was tough. So for people that don't know, the Encyclopedia of Black Comics is the first of its kind. It's basically profile pieces of over 100 Black people in the comics industry. You know, half the book is intentionally highlighting women. Like, you can't do any of these things without a team. So I went to New York Comic Con and started connecting with other comic creators and writers to see if they knew some of the people that were going to have entries so that we can get some personal firsthand essays. And so it was really a lot of people involved in that book. In fact, at the beginning of the book, I list out a lot of those people that helped with putting that together. I'm talking like 15 people or something like that, that helped with that book, but it was a lot of moving parts. And it was really kind of just me at the kind of the top of the organizational chart, trying to get everything in and get everything done. It, it was hard, which is why I haven't done an updated version because it was hard. Like I would like to do an updated version because obviously there's some oversights in that book, but I would need a publisher to give me money. Like I would need an advance that can cover me hiring a research assistant and that kind of thing. A lot of that cost fell on me with that first book. But there should be an updated version because now that book's 2017 and so many new Black creators here now and then there's so many people we missed in that first book. For you, what do you feel like the power in ensuring those stories are available and amplified is? I think about it like at the at the end of the world... When the aliens come down and they're looking through the rubble and I want them to pull back them rocks and say, oh my goodness, black people were doing it big in this strange medium. I don't know what we call it, but they were doing it big and they're so diverse and amazing and vibrant and colorful. That is literally what I picture <laughs> when I'm documenting all of this stuff. And I really love that now people are using graphic novels to tell the story of black leaders like March and those types of things. Because in 2007, when I was doing my dissertation, it wasn't like that. Now it's like people, you know, even people that used to just write superheroes are now like documenting black leaders, historical leaders in the graphic novel form. So that's what I'm here for. I love that. I love it. All right. So I got to ask, are there any new projects you got coming up that you want folks to know about? Besides, obviously, Marvel's Voices Wakanda Forever, number one. Yes. Yeah, so I have a book on Amazon right now. It was on the Amazon number one release in business entrepreneurship for a while, but I wrote it with the CEO of Black Girl Ventures. It's called Originate, Motivate, Innovate. It's a business book for Black and Brown women to help them level up and get some venture capital. And so... 
that book I'm really excited about. And I wrote DMC's graphic novel number four last year. So be on the lookout for that. And I'm writing something else for him that's going to be a major that I can't wait to talk about. And um, yeah, I have a fiction book right now that I am pitching around to agents. I've never had an agent, by the way. <laughs> People think I do. I've never had an agent, but um, I'm pitching. Um, it's called Start Where You Stand. So those are some things I'm working on. You know, lots of awesome things coming out. I'm super excited. Thank you so much for making time to be on Marvel's Voices. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Next, I am talking to author Adam Serwer. Adam is a journalist at The Atlantic, where he writes primarily on politics, race, and justice. In 2021, he released his very first book, The Cruelty is the Point, a collection of essays about the Trump administration, racism, and violence. Adam was really able to bring his experience writing history and politics to his story in Marvel's Voices, Wakanda Forever Number 1, featuring T'Challa's grandfather, Azuri. Here's Adam now. Welcome to Marvel's Voices, Adam. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I was really excited when I first saw your name on the cast list for the book. And I was like, what is this story going to be? I kind of want folks to get a little bit of who you are. Like, how would you introduce yourself to someone who may or may not know your background and your career? I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine. I work for the ideas section, which is another way of saying I work for the opinion section. You know, a lot of my journalism has a lot to do with history and race and racism. And so particularly the direction that Black Panther has taken, both in the comic book over the past few years under Ta-Nehisi and in terms of the movies themselves, which I think are in a very deep conversation with Black history. It felt very comfortable to me to sort of try and turn these two objects of fascination, comic books and superheroes and black history into something that I could offer to a comic book audience. And that was a lot of fun for me. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is your first comic book story. This is actually so this is my second. I wrote co-wrote something with my friend Evan for Wakanda issue number two. That's Black Panther writer Evan Narciss, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that story was, I think, I don't know how many of your listeners are regular readers of the Black Panther comics, but ta is doing something very interesting that sort of intersects with the history of slavery in the Caribbean with the intergalactic empire of Wakanda and sort of imagining a galactic Wakandan empire that is largely built on slavery. Obviously, it's science fiction, but it draws on a lot of the unfortunate history of Black people in the Caribbean. And so where that first comic comes in as sort of after slavery has been abolished, after the emperor has been deposed. And I won't go too much into detail there because I think it's a great series and I think your readers will really enjoy reading it. But so my issue sort of takes place in the aftermath of this sort of abolition of slavery. And so in my journalism work, reconstruction is a frequent subject that I go back to in part because I think it really has lessons for the present. And it's sort of the first time that America ever tried to really be a multiracial democracy. And I think, you know, the intergalactic empire of Wakanda in that period is dealing with a similar issue, although because the empire itself is of African descent, these issues of class really come to the forefront. And I thought that was something clever that ta did in creating the intergalactic 
Empire Wakanda in the way that he did. And I just really wanted to sort of take that baton and run with it. So I was imagining, you know, what does this society that was reliant on slavery economically, what does it do when it no longer has slaves? And so that was my first comic for Marvel. And then they asked me to do something for this Black History Month volume. And again, because Wakanda has recently in the hands of a couple of its most justly celebrated custodians has been interacting and speaking to Black history, I wanted to draw on those subjects again with the short story I did about Shanga Mire, who is, of course, a character that if you've read the A Nation Under Our Feet arc, I think he's a very interesting character because, of course, that is Ta-Nehisi's first arc on Black Panther. And he's sort of asking this question, you know, well, Wakanda is a monarchy. Well, what happens when the people of Wakanda want it to be a democracy or something closer to a democracy? Shangamira is this Republican intellectual, essentially. When I say Republican, I, I just mean in a sort of democratic sense. He's somebody who wants to see Wakanda put monarchy behind it. And I sort of wanted to ask myself, what is the past that a person has in Wakanda, an intellectual, that would lead them to be a radical in this particular sense of wanting to oppose this deeply rooted tradition in the country? What kind of background that person would have? Where would they start out? What would set them on the journey to be in the place where they are when a nation under our feet begins? And I was partially influenced by another storyline that's one of my favorites, which is Reggie Hudlin's Flags of Our Fathers, which is the sort of Captain America, Black Panther team up. And I was sort of interested in that, like what would lead Azuri in that situation, the Black Panther in that situation, to be open to working with Captain America in the context of World War II? And so those were sort of the dual inspirations for what ended up being the short story that, that is in this volume. And yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit. You mentioned Evan, Evan Narciss, who is a Marvel writer. He's been in Marvel's Voices before. But you also kind of mentioned the first run of ta Coates, the former writer of Black Panther. And it's really incredible how ta starts his runoff going, we've really talked about the monarchy. We really haven't focused on the people of Wakanda outside of the palace. But in Ta-Nehisi's first run, he really explores what does descent look like when you are still dealing with a monarchy. And I think it's really incredible that you decided to step into the past to explain the future. It was a lot of fun for me. Shangamira is a character that I found personally fascinating reading A Nation Under Our Feet because I never, you don't really think about what is the role of intellectuals in the Marvel Universe. You know, that, that's not a thing that comes up. You know, obviously, origin stories are very fun. There's a reason why comic book writers are constantly redoing them. They sort of compel you both as a writer and a reader to think about what is the essence of this character? What makes them who they are? And both as readers and as writers, people like riffing off of those things to try to reinvent the character in a new way. And I was, again, what I was really just trying to do was sort of take the baton from other writers and other people who have really laid the groundwork for this incredibly rich world. Like I think the Wakanda of today has been tremendously enriched by the writers that have had it. Both readers and writers have become so fascinated with this world and have been doing so many creative things with it that it's really sort of a delight to just sort of, you know, be able to dip my toe in the way that I did. Yeah. And I love that because you had this opportunity to bring your expertise to the table, right? Because most of your work is actually not superhero comics like as you mentioned you're a staff writer from the atlantic 
how is it being able to bring that kind of expertise to your story? I mean, look, it's a lot of fun. But again, to be honest, I got to give the credit. Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. This is a story about colonialism. It's not an accident that Killmonger is himself an agent of American foreign policy. And then he comes to Wakanda and he sort of puts Wakanda through the experience of colonialism in microcosm in this part of this fictional part of Africa that has never experienced colonialism before. He's having that conversation with history already. And I've found that personally inspirational. And one of Killmonger's grievances, of course, is where was Wakanda? You know, during this whole period of the scramble for Africa, where all these, you know, atrocities and crimes against humanity are being committed by European powers, Wakanda does nothing. That is such a compelling emotional anchor for the story of the first Black Panther film, but it also opens up opportunities for other writers to say, well, what was Wakanda doing during this period or during this period or during this period? And to me, one of the sort of turning points in world history is, of course, you know, the rise of fascism in Italy and its decision to conquer Ethiopia, which is something that they did in part because of a failed attempt to conquer Ethiopia decades earlier, where they were repelled by the Ethiopian army. And so I will try not to spoil the story, but Shangamiri's intellectual origin is tied up in these events. And to me, because of that question that Kugler asks through Killmonger, where was Wakanda? This is sort of a brief window of time where I'm saying this is what Wakanda was doing at this moment. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is it's a lot of fun. It's a very small contribution to this world, but it is very much inspired by the creativity that the other writers, directors, other creative minds that have been working on Wakanda recently and and, and done so many interesting things with it. It's very much inspired by what they have been doing in terms of taking world history, Black history, Black American history, and trying to mine that for meaningful stories. And I love it. And I got a shout out. I really enjoy the story. So like, that's why you you. you keep having me like hitting on it because, you know, I am a person who loves the history and the context, right? These are things that have been intrinsic in this world. And we've only been able to go in because there have been these more inclusive with personal experience and lived experience of the people of color coming in and defining the importance, particularly like Kugler, like ta bringing those personal experiences of folks who have that history. Do you feel like this has been special in the way that projects are put together and we get to bring in new creators newer creators like you. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a what's interesting is that these sort of kernels of these stories were there in the origin of the character, right? I mean, there's a reason why they made this character the way they made him, even though the original inventors of the character are, are not black. But then what you see is recently you have all these people, you know, like Evan, like Ryan, like Tanahasi who have really built this world to make it a rich and vivid and recognizable world. So, you know, for you, you're a journalist, right? You're illustrating through words. And in comics, you're literally illustrating. What was the difference in the process of collaborating with an artist and an editor in this way that's kind of different from your usual writing work? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, it's completely different. You know, it's a completely different type of writing. You know, I have my body of knowledge from being a journalist and from doing the kind of work that I do. But it's, for example, dialogue, like that's very difficult. It's something that I'm very self-conscious about. 
about worrying that every character will sound like they're, they're talking with the same voice. What comic book writers and fiction writers do to me is amazing. When authors are able to make clear that these characters are distinct, they speak with distinct voices, they have distinct motivations, they do things different from each other. When that is realized, I think that's just a very difficult thing to do, to tell a story that way. For me, when they first asked me to do it, I really did not want to do it unless I had what I thought was like a really good story. I would not have said yes if I did not come up with something that I thought was worthy of being included in a volume like this. And it took me a while. Like I had to think about it because as fun as that first story was, it was like very much, again, because of all the time that I spent researching and writing about Reconstruction, writing about the intergalactic empire of Wakanda after slavery was something that was sort of in my wheelhouse in a way that felt not easy, but familiar enough for me to, to step in and like try to work on something. And also I had Evan helping me, which is a little different. He did help me this time too. You know, I talked through ideas with him and stuff like that. But, but he's it, you a know, Black Panther historian, yo. Yeah, he's the best. I did talk to him about it. And all I can say is like, I, it's a very different type of work. I have nothing but admiration for the people who are able to do it well. I think it's very difficult, especially in this day and age, to stand out because there are so many people who want to do it. There are so many people who are doing it because there are so many different venues in which to do it. So for me, it was definitely very difficult. I would not have done it if I didn't feel like I had like a story that was worthy of being told. And I feel you know very fortunate to have been able to participate in this small way. And I love that because one of the reasons that, you know, the word diversity is something that is kind of thrown around a lot, but I always like using the word inclusivity. And one of the reasons I like utilizing that word much more is because people of color are not a monolith, right? We all come with our own expertise, our own backgrounds, our own career paths. You know, I love the fact that we're able to bring together folks like Yona Harvey, who is a poet, Ta-Nehisi, who is this brilliant writer who comes from like this legacy of the power of literature. And then your expertise in analyzing these things and being able to put them in context and make them accessible for other folks is so important when we're talking about how rich our stories are. This is this is really amazing. And I'm so happy you were able to be part of this book. Yeah, it was a pleasure for me, too. And to your point, you know, all those authors have, you know, John Ridley's T'Challa is not going to be Eve Ewing's T'Challa. And his T'Challa was not ta T'Challa. I mean, all these authors, Roxane Gay, all these authors have different interpretations of who this character is. And that's the way it should be. And that's part of the fun of these episodic comic book stories is that you can have these authors who come in and give their own unique interpretation of this world and these characters in a way that, you know, helps you look at them in a different way. You asked me before, like, what it's like as an author, first-time author to first see pages. You know, Ty Harris did an incredible job on the art for my story. And it's really just sort of mystical as a writer to write a story. And then, you know, you, you do descriptions, but the artist comes up with an interpretation of your words that is not what you imagine in your head because it's somebody else's head. And there's a kind of magic to seeing what the artist does with those words. It's an incredible experience. There's nothing like, like, again, there's no other way for me to describe it except for magic. Like it really, it feels like a kind of magic to see the artist take those descriptions, that stuff, which is really not super detailed, you know, and just really build something beautiful out of it. I love it. All right. Is there anything else you got coming down the pipe you want folks to talk about? Are we going to see any more stories? 
hopefully, again, you know, if I do anything else, it'll only be if I come up with something that I think is really good because I, you know, I really respect this world and these characters and this material, and I would never want to do something just to do it. But hopefully this is not the last you'll see of me. I love it. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with both Adam and Sheena, not just about their stories, but about the experiences and passion they brought to the table in Marvel's Voices Wakanda Forever number one. So the anthology is out now, wherever you get your comics, make sure you go grab a copy and be on the lookout for more Marvel's Voices anthologies coming out this year, including Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one. Next week in our show, we're talking about how Marvel finds creators like Adam and Sheena from our director of talent relations and publishing recruitment, John Michael Innes. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina. <laughs>